0: Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit elitelearning.com/podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. This is Dr. Candace Pierce with Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare, and you are listening to our Elite Learning Podcast, where we share the most up-to-date education for healthcare professionals. Thank you for joining us for this podcast series topic on conscientious and Just Subjection and Patient Care. I'm joined by Dr. James Stowe, a registered nurse and a jurist doctor from the Stanford University's Cumberland School of Law. Jay, thank you so much for joining us for this topic.
1: Excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yes, absolutely. I really want you to start us off with the why. Why do we need to talk about conscientious objection and understand it? And why do you think it it really became a, a big topic or a bigger topic through the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: You know, as we think about ethical decisions, which I would uh, classify conscientious ob- objection as an ethical decision, uh, in healthcare, um, you know, we have to consider where is that coming from? You know, why today versus years gone by? Uh, and I think it ha- all has to do with where our ethical foundation has uh, kind of come from, right? Where has it transitioned from? You know, if we if we think back um, years ago, we have the Hippocratic Oath, right? Right. So um, Hippocrates, around 400 BC, uh, developed a Hippocratic Oath, and it basically said for physicians, and, and I'll paraphrase it, um, pledge to prescribe only beneficial treatments uh, according to that physician's abilities and judgment, uh, refrain from causing harm or hurt. And to live an exemplary personal and professional life, like it really extended outside of just their confines of of an office. Um, And we kind of know it best today as the oath our medical students take, right? Right. Well, um, when you look at it and you look at today compared to years going by, the oath has really been chipped away. It's really been amended. Well, 98 or so percent of our uh, medical students still take an oath. And we even have a, uh, an oath for nurses. There's a Nightingale oath. Um. Yes,
0: I was. Yeah, I was going to bring that up while you were talking about it. And that one was written in 1838. Um, and it was named in honor of Florence Nightingale, but it was actually written in Detroit, Michigan. And that one has also been changed multiple times. But our nursing students still take an oath, a pledge.
1: They did. They took a pledge. And when you look at these things together, you know, kind of all these disciplines are, are taking this oath and we think, hey, do no harm. You know, I guess that's it's three words. It's easy to remember. Um, and that's not necessarily the foundation of these oaths anymore. Uh, it's really interesting. They, uh, you know, we've taken things out of them. You know, the original oath, for example, has a comment in there or a phrase, in a quote, and says, "And in a like manner, I will not give to a woman a pessary to produce abortion." That was in the original of Hipp- Hippocratic Oath. Um, do you think a hospital, or, or excuse me, a university or a college, is going to allow their students to take a stand or a pledge one way or the other, what, regardless of your belief, on a, such a, a, a contentious issue? They're just
0: not. No, not at um, all.
1: Not at all. And so then you look at that and you think. Um, well, what about legally? Well, when you take this oath, you know, we all have this belief doctors, you take a Hippocratic oath, nurses, you take this oath. Um, when you get into court, it's real simple as an attorney to say, hey, look, you pledged to do no harm and uh, you did harm. So even this do no harm language has been amended. So I say all this to say that our, the ethical foundations that we have, uh, that we used to have, kind of this collective belief, yeah, has really eroded. And I think COVID-19 has kind of brought that to the forefront where our personal beliefs now more than ever dictate our ethics. And it's not so collective anymore, it's very individualized, and that's impacting how we provide healthcare. And it's impacting whether or not our health is truly patient-centered or not.
0: Right. Is it patient-centered or is it, is it we-centered? Uh, but I think that also highlights why this it seems like it's such a gray area. Conscientious objection, to me, seems very gray. And I don't understand where the line is drawn between my personal beliefs and my duty to take care of to provide care
1: well it's a great question and the answer is not very many people know that answer either um because it's a very difficult situation so you take a look at it and our country which was founded uh on religious principles right right it's very difficult to disagree with that point so our uh court system, our country founding had all these religious principles. And you look today uh, in religious, you know, it's kind of hard to judge. Like, who is still religious today? What kind of, you know, that's a difficult question. Uh Kind of a, an oversimplified way of looking at that is is church membership. Right. Right. You look from the 1930s to roughly the year 2000, and, and while it fluctuated up and down, about 70% mm-hmm. of the U.S. was uh, a member of a church one church right. or another. Since 2000, that number from 70% has fallen to 47 Wow. So in a very short period of time, we've kind of gone away from a collective belief to more individual beliefs. And why is that important when we talk about uh, the healthcare professionals, personal beliefs? It's because those healthcare professionals have their personal beliefs now. Okay. They no longer have that right. collective belief. Um, from a healthcare standpoint, our our oath has deteriorated. Our uh, religious foundation has, we've we've stepped away from that, and so now we really uh, look at things in kind of a what are our experiences, right? right? What are what's the ten minute YouTube? What's the 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 TikTok, the five-second Snapchat, what is that teaching us and telling us, and we're forming our beliefs from there? A very influenced uh, society. So when you look at this and you try to go, hey, how do I correlate my own personal beliefs with the legal system? It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. You know, we, um, we recently had a, a huge decision in 2022 where the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Yeah, that was uh, I haven't heard that much outcry over a U.S. Supreme Court decision in in quite a long time. Um, as an attorney, it's it's very interesting to me because what the court system did is it said basically, look, we don't believe the federal government has the right to uh, decide this. We don't think that's under the federal court's purview. We think that's a state's right for decision. So, so many people said, "Hey, Ruby Bain." it banned abortions. It didn't do that. It actually kind of more followed the Constitution and said, hey, if the powers aren't expressed to the federal government, they go to the states to decide. And so the states decided. And some put very, very constrictive bans on it. I live in Alabama. We uh, collectively as a state have such a ban that we had laws just in the waiting uh, to, yes. kick, yeah, to <laughs> kick in, you know, when yes. it was overturned. So they were ready and, and, and willing uh to stop well, it from the get
0: in texas i saw they just uh finished the first lawsuit where um a, a, a pregnant person sued to try to have an abortion because they found out that there was something wrong with the baby and and they said no so she had to go out of state in order to to get the abortion so um, you know, in,
1: in that case is interesting I, I i was listening to that case and from a legal perspective versus healthcare, you so let's say that states and, and alabama does not have that. so okay let's say and texas does have this and this is part of the issue texas said you know what if there is life-saving uh if Measure. the mother if the mother's life is at risk and we need to do life-saving measures then abortion is okay no one will define what is a life-saving measure or when is the mother at risk. Right. Right. So we don't have clear guidelines. There are no clear guidelines. In this particular case, and, and forgive me, I don't have all the facts in front of me, but in this particular case, I believe the mother did some testing and the, the child either will not be viable or there'll be some, uh, some very, uh, be very severe. affected, some severe effects yeah. uh, on birth. So is the mother's health truly at risk? Is her life in jeopardy? and debatable? You know, I'm not a physician, so I don't know. But that's part of the problem is we all have this feeling of, oh, you know, I mean, from healthcare providers, hey, I want, if the mother's life is at risk, absolutely, save her life, right? Yeah. But, But legally, where is that line? And we don't know. The bottom line and, is we don't know, and we've got to figure that out. And unfortunately, that's going to go through many, many lawsuits and many, yeah. many judges' interpretations until we get there.
0: So how many physicians and nurses are going to say, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm going to object to that because, and not even necessarily because of ethical and moral issues, but because of I don't know where the line is, so I'm going to object so that I don't cross a line that I didn't know was there.
1: You know, if you if you take a step back and you look at it, the smart answer is many of them. Cause and I say that not from a patient centered focus. Yeah. I say that on we're a very litigious society. Yes. And there's no field that is sued more than uh or no no individual is soon more than an OBGYN. If we are, we are under this concept that every child is going to be born without any issue, right? I mean, it's going to be perfect. Right. But baby boy, baby girl, is going to be perfect. And if there's anything at all wrong, it's an automatic lawsuit. Yeah. And so you have that already. That's, that, is, that is pure numbers. You can research that. So you have that already. And now we bring this on. Um, if I'm a nurse operating in that area, I have to seriously consider what I do. You know, it's my livelihood, my license.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and physicians as well. What happens when they start saying, I'm going to take my conscience objection and I'm stepping out?
0: I'm going to go it, to insurance over here. I, I know an OBGYN that, that stepped out and went to insurance. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Just stepped out of the field completely.
1: Yeah, You, you know, it's, it's very difficult when you work six months of the year just to pay your my practice premiums. And yeah. to feel good about your work. Um, right. and, and at the same time, we need more physicians and nurses than ever. There's there's a very big shortage. And um, while all of these things are being brought to the forefront, we have people leaving the field, leaving the practice. Right. And it just makes things more and more complicated. You know, a, a recent study uh, that I read, it, it stated that there's going to be a 20% shortage of nurses by 2025. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a that's a tremendous impact, you know. And you can is... put di- and there were different numbers put anywhere from two hundred yeah. to five hundred thousand nurses. But it, either way, that's a huge impact. But the the, the number that I didn't uh, or had not heard before was that there was roughly a twelve percent increase in demand for care, uh, more acute, more sick patients. So we've got fewer staff, more patients getting sick. So right, it's a double whammy. And uh, it's really going to set decisions in how we approach health.
0: Absolutely. Now, how is there even a way? And I I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but to really differentiate between the individual belief as a healthcare worker, as a nurse, um, and trying to give that patient centered care.
1: It's very difficult. It's very difficult.
0: Well, Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine with individual, care, with individual beliefs versus patient-centered care.
1: Uh, so COVID-19 uh, vaccine is uh, a really, it is an interesting one. Um, you know, we, we get this massive scare across the country, right, this pandemic. And COVID-19 vaccine was, was produced to uh, save humanity. And so we started giving this vaccine, and there's all kind of issues with it and with it, I mean uh the rollout you know it, it's it's brand new we're trying to do as much as we can as fast as we can, uh trying to give it to as many right. people as we can to save lives as fast as we can and you know the the normal steps are uh kind of bypassed it's under emergency use authorization, right so you know it's no secret right. so it gets out because. It's an emergency. There's a pandemic. So now that it's kind of passed us, we have all these questions. And I think it's natural for those in the healthcare field to especially ask questions and say, well, let me think about what was done. What was done right? What was done wrong? Um, And then it's a very natural progression to go, hey, look, well, I've got to get this flu vaccine, right? I've got, there's a flu vaccine that is... Um, <clears throat> from what is it the flu season in the hospitals October first through March first, roughly March first, and yeah. so with that now, what most frontline healthcare people don't understand, and what most patients and families don't understand, is there's actually financial compensation tied up into administration and documentation of this one thing, along with many things. So if the nurse says, "Look, hey," um. If if I'm the nurse leader, I'm the nurse manager and nurse director, frontline staff nurse comes to me and says, Look, I just, uh, after this whole COVID thing, I'm just really, I've got a lot of answers. I mean, a lot of questions, excuse me. I've got a lot of questions. And um, I need, if I could just see a safety study of this annual flu vaccine, I just would feel a whole lot better about giving it, right? Because there's there's all this controversy with the COVID 19. I don't know what, I don't understand it, but I know there's controversy. So if I could just see this, so you have to sit there and look and say, "Wait a minute, there isn't a safety study. There hasn't really been a safety study on vaccines in 40 years, but even if you did, how do you do a long-term safety study on a seasonal flu vaccine that changes year after year it, yeah. It's just Every year. It's pretty unfeasible to ever you know.
0: and the COVID 19 vaccine continues to change. Yeah, they're continuously putting out boosters. They're so like, oh, we're adding new strains to it. It's a continual change between COVID-19 and for the flu vaccine every year. It
1: is. And so you look at that, and as the frontline nursing personnel, you know, it's a very valid question. I want to see a safety study because, again, if we go back to this oath of do no harm, it's hard to marry the two, right? Because we don't have evidence that right. we're not harming. So when we look at that...
0: Well, and I just want to point out, too, while you're talking about this, is it's almost sometimes in some facilities you get like, and it's like this scarlet letter, um, you didn't get your flu vaccine or you didn't get your COVID booster or, you know, so you're going to get fired or you're going to have to wear this and a mask and so that everybody knows that you made a decision following your conscience, your conscience. Yeah, it's
1: really tough. You know, the hospitals are uh or in any healthcare facility really it's kind of twofold you know um we want you to take the f- the flu vaccine for example because we don't want you to get sick one so we care about your health but at the same time also need you here to take care of these patients and if you're not here we can't accept as many and the revenue goes down so it's a, and so it's kind of this where is the line Are the hospitals really altruistic, or are they just kind of worried about the bottom line? So what do they do? They say, you have the choice. You do have a choice to take it or not in most situations. However, if you don't, I'm going to need you to mask up and and do all these things that other people aren't, and you need to stand out. Okay?
0: Right. So Mm -hmm.
1: is that really a... Fair allowance of being able to choose for your yourself and be able to consciously object to to something, or are you able to do it with kind of an asterisk of well, we're going to make fun of you and browbeat you into doing something? And so it's a fine line you, uh, out there, and and I think that's why this thing still persists is because no one really knows how to really appease all sides. But at the but at the end of the day, right. you know if. if the science says that flu vaccines do well and help people and we, the nursing staff is deciding not to give it what about the elderly immunocompromised in the hospital uh grandkids are going to come see them and you know and kids are kids are little petri dishes they bring everything from daycare care school home <laughs> and so we 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 now share all this with grandmother she gets the flu um could we have a void right. so we have to go back at some point and consider what that patient centered care really looks like in light of all of these kind of personal ethical uh issues that are before us.
0: Right. I want to bring up a couple of um examples that I can think of that that I've seen happen or, you know, heard talked about within our profession. And I just want to throw those out there and just see are are these how these might be um within that gray area of conscientious objection. And one of those is you're working on a floor, uh, the house supervisor says that you have to take a immunocompromised patient, but your floor is full of, um, say the flu, the flu is hanging out on your floor and you have an immunocompromised patient. You don't have enough nurses to make sure that this person is just dedicated to this immunocompromised patient. And so you decline to care for that patient. Maybe because you have a flu patient and they're trying to give you this immunocompromised and you don't want to share the flu by accident with this patient. Do you have the right? Is that that something you can conscientiously object to? Do you have the right to stand up and say, "Uh, I can't do that?
1: So it's very interesting. Most, uh, the ability to conscientiously object is pretty protected by law, right? Kind of the foundations are our. Uh, religious freedom, our freedom of speech, uh, our freedom of choice. It's really embedded in our constitutional rights. So that's pretty uh, supported by most states and their constitutions. What happens, though, is the hospital says, hey, we, we understand that, but we still have to provide care." So what do, what can we do? So most hospitals have policies that say, you know what, you can object. Um, but I need you to come to HR. I need you to list all of your objections and we're going to keep that on file. And when you have a situation that arises, we're going to take what you have written down and cross it and make sure they, they meet. That's a pretty intimidating thing. Um, you take the average healthcare worker to go down, formally write out. And what if you don't include every little situation that arises? I mean, you know, topically, right. you know, topically, we we kind of had an example here. We know topically, okay. I don't, I don't want to participate in abortion, for example. Texas situation yeah. comes up. Well, did we list mother's choice and mother's belief that she has a terminal situation in front of her, or or not? You know, where's that line? So what happens is when we get a patient in. And we say, you know what, this kind of looks like, smells like, feels like that that situation where I want to conscientiously object. We do so. Right. Nurse manager, nurse director calls HR. They pull the list. They come back and say, close, but no cigar, right? This doesn't fall into that exception. You need to do this task. Well, you ethically and morally, based on your religion, are like, wait a minute, I just, I don't feel good about this. So you do have the right to conscientiously object. However, in this instance, you didn't list it. You didn't follow hospital policy. So you actually are violating hospital policy and you have to decide whether you're going to keep your job or do the act. So it's very difficult. The other thing is on the flip side, if you accept the patient, if you accept the assignment, you accept the care over the patient, you accept that duty. Then you've accepted care and you've assumed that you will do what the patient needs. So now, right. how do you object? It's very difficult. Um, and there's, there's gray lines there, right? You know, you didn't know about what the patient was asking before you got assigned the patient. Um, you do now. So what do you do? It's very great. It's very right. difficult. Um, but if you accept care for that patient and you decide halfway through the care you're doing an action, um, halfway through you go, ah, wait a minute, I don't know about that. It's going to be very difficult to defend that because you've accepted the duty, you started it, and now you're stopping and refusing. There's a great right. chance that you'll be held liable in court for failing to complete the task or failing to help the patient at that.
0: Right. So i throw another example out there. Um, we have a patient who is basically end-of-life care uh, physician writes for morphine, um, but you know that if you give this amount that is written for, it's not a sliding scale morphine, it is an amount of morphine, that it's going to de- continue to de- decrease those uh, breath, and she is going to pass on. So really what is happening is, is that morphine is helping to end the life, not on purpose, but... You know that that is what's going to happen from experience, and you're not comfortable with participating in that. You've checked with the physician, and the physician, that's what he wants you to give, so that's what the order is. What do you do in that instant? Do you have an option?
1: You always have an option, right? As the nurse, you always have the options. Now, the truth is you have to weigh your options because your options can be uh or the repercussions i should say of your choice can be several things one you can just simply be okay fine take this patient swap with somebody else you know report off and we'll move on right we're busy let's just swap people and move on on. second is you're going to get yelled at uh, belittled, harassed hazed um what does that mean for the future are you going to continue to get that Do the, or does the physician that rounds the next day go up? Yep. There's the, there's the obstinate nurse. You know, there's the one over there that won't do anything. Won't even, won't even take care of her patients. And patients and families are hearing this, you know, does that happen? Yeah. Or, or sleep. Yes. Do you just get fired? And can you afford to be fired? You know, when's your, when's your mortgage due? Right. When's your car payment due? It's wintertime right now. It's cold. Do you keep your children warm or not? And so these are not easy questions uh, to answer for the healthcare practitioner, especially when you're in the middle of it and you have mere seconds to think about it. And when we think about this, this whole ethical dilemma, you got to slow down. And that's one of the hardest things, but we we mentioned the difficult situations, difficult patients, but also there's, there's fewer staff. There's more acute patients more need out there which all of that leads to less and less time to simply think. Um, So yes, you can is the answer. Um, But you just have to know the repercussions for it. And um, are you okay with it?
0: So, Do you have, I know you have an interesting background and story where you went to school to be a registered nurse and then uh, decided to go be an attorney, uh, spent some time and, um, you worked with, uh, med- I'm assuming, medical um, issues within within law for a while, and now you do hospital administration. So I love that you see kind of both sides of this. You're seeing the legal side, but then you also see the the hospital from the inside out. So you're able to kind of pull those together. And what is your perspective? What have you seen inside the hospital when it comes to conscientious objection and how m- most places might treat conscientious objection you know it
1: really boils down to boils down to the executive leadership and and i mean that from not only the hospital staff but also the physician staff right um hospital staff i say that because the chief nursing officer most of the staff 50 plus percent of the the staff in a hospital reports up to the cno um because, again, nurses and LPNs and, and aides and techs are at the bedside, and that's, that's their line of uh, authority in, in reporting. So if you have a strong chief nurse, you have a strong uh, CEO, and strong COO where the physicians typically report up to, that are all lockstop together and say, okay, look, anybody can stop the line. Let's, let's figure out what we can actually do here to fix the situation and keep the patient centered as long as you have that if i object to something i just don't feel comfortable with hey next man up next lady up hey who's okay with this hey i'm okay with this great y'all report off let's move on everybody wins if you don't have that strong leadership that work together and uh it's more of a complaint where so-and-so's complaining they didn't do this so-and-so's complaining they didn't do that and it just escalates and the tensions rise and you lose that teamwork you lose that environment then it just the the whole culture falls apart right people are people are standing by their ethical decisions we all have different decisions we all have different ethical and religious beliefs so it's okay to stand by them just express them clearly and Let's figure out a way around that. And I think if we were to stop and we had supportive environments from top down that would address these changes in real time, we can bypass the, the hazing, the harassment, the belittling of people who decide to speak up. Um, because unfortunately, in so many instances today, uh, we kind of resort to name calling and belittling and hazing versus keeping the patient in the center and moving towards, okay, you object, let's figure out how to take care of the patient. Who can do that? And we miss that. We miss that a lot today.
0: And I think that really erodes uh, the workforce that we do have. Um, you know, we, We're seeing a rise in suicide for a healthcare professional, especially nurses too. And we saw that through COVID. And I know we attribute a lot of that to PTSD from you know the things that they saw. But, but also, how about the fact that they weren't able to follow the things that they ethically and morally believed and felt. Um, you know, I worked with a nurse who uh, it was in the ICU, and she she didn't want her patients to die alone. So she would sit in a room, she would hold their hand. Um, you know, and you wouldn't see her until that patient passed away. But not every nurse was able to do that um, because you know, hey. I need to talk to my charge nurse. I I object to someone dying alone. I, I just, I can't, I can't have that happen. Can you watch my patient? You know, how many people weren't given the ability to feel like, to uphold their ethical and moral values as to the reason why they even went into healthcare in the first place? And how does that affect them mentally? I mean, and you think that-
1: I think it's greatly impactful. Um, you, you know what I would even offer so much as, the first step to this whole uh, conversation is Do we tell the healthcare workers that they have the right to do this?
0: No, I've never had somebody tell me if you don't believe in something, if you are not comfortable. Now, I've had them say, If you're not comfortable, come get me. We'll do it together. Right. But I've never had somebody say if you firmly do not believe in assisting you know and giving this medication that you know is going to assist somebody and and leaving this world that you don't have to do that i've never had someone tell me that i didn't have to overstep the values and morals that i have and
1: i think that's one of the first things that we have to consider you know how far does that go for a healthcare institution to empower its staff to say I care enough about your beliefs and opinions to ask you in advance what you're good doing. Because the truth of the matter is, is there's not that that many things. If you really sit down and think about it, there's not that many things that people are going to object to. And when you make that short list, how often do those come up actually on a day to day basis? Truly rare, you know, and we talk about these kind of extreme examples. That happened daily across the U.S., this abortion and end-of-life interventions. But when you narrow it down from 5,500 hospitals across the U.S. to one specific floor, to one specific unit, to one that one bed where you're working, it's not frequent. So when you, I mean, I, I wonder how far does that go to creating a workforce and an environment that I, as a healthcare worker, want to work in if someone cares enough to ask me, what are my pinch points? What 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 are my objections? Right. I think it would go a long way.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really good point too, uh, especially for leaders to kind of think about when they're trying to build their floor, they're trying to build their team, to let them know that there is an out when something isn't following what I believe. So fortunately, we've come to the end of our time for episode one, but please join us for episode two, where Dr. So will continue this discussion and we're going to really break down some of those individual beliefs versus patient-centered care and some strategy to uh, help us navigate this gray area. Thank you so much for being here for episode one, Jay. This has been so informative and I'm really looking forward to continuing this this conversation with you in episode two. Thank you.